Amen. Thank you, worship team. It's good to sing some of those songs as we come into this season. Uh, last week, we talked about a phrase that was, that was really, really important. Words to live by, actually. And that phrase was, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. And in everything, Jesus Christ. So in the things that matter most, in the things that if you, if you don't hold to these things, you'd find yourself on the outside of God's family, we unite around those things. We affirm those things. We hold tightly to those things. In the things that the Bible leaves some, some room for, some, some disagreement, some debate, there's not as much clarity as we would like to see there, well, then we're going to lovingly engage each other in discussing those things. It's not that we're going to ignore those things. It's not that they are not important, but we can lovingly engage one another in good conversations about those things. And then when there is a, some disagreement here or there, well, we can, we can continue to love each other through them and remain united despite them. In, in everything, though, in, in what we believe, in what we think, in what we say, in what we do, especially when it comes to the body of Christ, well, it's all about Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we want. We want Christ to be glorified in everything that we are, especially in everything that we are together. And so we rally around essentials, and that is what this whole study is about that we were going through right now. And this morning, we look at the essential doctrine of the human condition. I was inter interviewing for a youth pastor job a number of years, many, many years ago, actually. Now, I forget how old I am. And uh, I, I, I was sitting down with the, the team there, the search team, and they asked me to explain to them how I understood, what I understood about the gospel. And so I began to tell them that the gospel is, is, is really, really good news. But you've, to explain the gospel, you've got to start with the bad news. And after I had exp uh, finished explaining how Christ came to meet our greatest need, the problem that all of us have with sin, well, they thanked me. And then they went on to say how they, they really struggle with the idea of, of explaining that, that junior high and high school kids are sinners in need of a Savior. They, they're, they're not quite ready for that yet. And I came to realize that theirs was a gospel that was more akin to another gospel that has been preached for ah, some 40 years, not too far away from us over in Garden Grove. A gospel that is not necessarily about Christ saving us from the captivity and punishment of our sin, but a gospel that is all about self-esteem. It's about self-esteem. It turns God into this kind of uh, emotional support animal <laughs> or, or, or like a fluffy, comfortable uh, cosmic pillow that you just can, oh, it's just oh, so comforting. God is just so comforting. It's, it's a happiest place on earth kind of gospel. It's a come to Jesus. He wants you to know that God loves you. We don't disagree with that. But he, he just loves you, and he, he's just really there to open your eyes to the fact that you're far better than even you understand yourself to be. It's, that's the good news. And, and that has a ring of, of good news about it, doesn't it? In fact, it almost sounds too good to be true. You, you guys have... Maybe you've received those fun phone calls or gotten those emails. You, you, you've won a million dollars. And you go, whoa, I didn't even know I was in a contest. Too good to be true. You've heard it said that if something is too good to be true, or seems too good to be true, then it, then it what? Well, it, it probably is. It probably is too good to be true. And there are a lot of things that seem too good to be true to us that end up letting us down. There are a lot of things. Some of us have been let down in some really, really big ways. But I don't think there's any, any news that, is, that can be a bigger letdown than buying into this idea that, that God sent Jesus to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy, and, and well-adjusted. <laughs> because if you find out that that wasn't at all why God sent Jesus, maybe you find out 
in fact, even after it's too late, that you never really had genuine saving faith, well, that was definitely too good to be true. Sadly, I think there are a lot of so-called pastors, preachers, evangelists that are leading people down that road. But we believe, we believe in our box of essentials, we put this, this concept, this doctrine in our statement of faith that you cannot divorce the good news from the bad news. Is the good news even really good without the bad news? <laughs> think about that. It, it, if the bad news is just that you really don't have a strong enough self-esteem, then, then the good news is, is really only kind of good, right? It's, it's sort of good. It, it, for some people, it, it, it may be good. For a lot of other people, eh, maybe not so. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the meh, meh kind of news. It's the, oh, oh, that's nice kind of news. It's the who needs it kind of news for a lot of people who don't have a problem with self-esteem. <laughs> and there are people out there, right? Or maybe they found an alternate solution to that problem. Maybe they found a, a more convenient, a more entertaining solution to that problem. And so they can get the solution to that problem through the music that they listen to, or the books that they read, or the sports, or the arts, or the, the entertainment, or whatever it is. Thousands of other ways, of other alternatives that they can have their self-esteem boosted. No wonder so many young people don't give a flying rip about what their parents believe, let alone the churches that they belong to. <laughs> if that's all the good news is, well, then I, I can find it elsewhere. And I can avoid the pain of having to wake up early on a Sunday morning and then drag myself out to some place where I'm going to hang out with people that I really don't relate to to begin with. These aren't my people. And, and you know, I can, I'm going to sing songs that aren't nearly as, as good or as powerful as the ones I can have pumped in through my earbuds. And then I have to listen to some gray-haired guy you know, get up and drone on and on and on. I don't need that. The good news that they're pumping is just not good enough for me. I think that church has done a tremendous disservice in trying to make the gospel of Jesus more palatable to the world. The whole idea is, well, let's make it, uh, let's, let's take the sting out of the gospel. Let's make it more, um, uh, more tasty to them. Let's make it more accessible. Let's make it less offensive to them. And so the idea is, if we do that, then more and more people are going to come, and they're going to embrace the gospel, and maybe we can lead them to you know, some of the deeper truths later on. They've turned it into something, though, that just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to anyone anymore. It might be a nice enhancement to life for some. People can show up to church and they can be like, oh yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. I put in my time. But for the rest, it just doesn't matter. That's not what we're about here. We cannot be about that here. No, here we have to be about the in-your-face, pick-you-up-and-throw-you-down-to-the-ground, roundhouse-kick-to-the-face kind of good news, right? It's that kind of good news. So we make no attempt to surround ourselves with, with, with these fl fluffy bunnies and non-fat lattes, right? It's not the pepper you with kisses and squeeze your little cheeks and tell you how darling you are kind of news. It's not that. It confronts you with the reality that you're dead. That you're dead. And that's what we're talking about today. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> the human condition. Without Christ, you and I have a condition. And the prognosis is negative. The, the, the condition is terminal, right? Even though you may think and feel yourself to be very, very much alive, very healthy, you are sick and you will die in your sin and eternal death unless something drastic happens that's heavy. And hearing that is not bad news. In fact, that's actually some of the best news that you can get because if my doctor finds out that I have a serious problem and he withholds, he or she withholds that from me, that is not good. I want my doctor to tell me 
everything that's going on. Why? So that I can either take precautions, that I can have some procedures done, that I can take some medications, that I can do whatever it takes to either get out of this, to fix this problem, or so that I can at least, at the very least, savor the few days that I, I may have left. I want to know the bad news. Let's talk about bad news this morning. What are the truths that we put in our box that are essentials when it comes to the state of humanity. First of all, we believe that God created Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, in his image. In the beginning, human life, it doesn't find its origin in a steaming puddle of goo. (laughs) No, it was intentionally formed. It was created by the creator masterfully, wonderfully, intricately, and intelligently. Some of you are familiar with uh, the name Carl Sagan. uh, Charlie might have a picture of him up in his uh, living room, I think. This is the world-renowned American astronomer. We could talk later. American astronomer. He's a a planetary scientist. He was a cosmologist. He was an astrophysicist. He was an astrobiologist, etc., etc., etc. In a book that he co-wrote with his wife, Anne, uh, called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, he wrote, We humans are like a newborn baby left on a doorstep with a note, with no note, explaining who it is. We're here. We see each other. We talk to each other. We're, we're trying to figure this out. We have no idea. There's, no one gave us any clue to figure out why we're here, who we are, or what we're supposed to be doing here. We disagree with that. In fact, we say, we came with a note. <laughs> God didn't abandon us. He didn't leave us on a doorstep without a clue. No, we abandoned him. And Yet he comes after us and speaks powerfully to us. When we were going through our study in Genesis, we talked about how Abraham was maybe called off of worshiping the moon on that ziggurat. And God breaks into his life and says, you, you, from you, I am going to make my people. You will bless the nations of the earth. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God comes after us. He informs us. He speaks to us like we just said last week. So any distance, any loneliness, any confusion that we have, well, it's not God's fault. (laughs) It's our own. All humanity can trace its roots back to the first two people that were formed. Formed male and female. Genesis 2, it tells us that we were designed to complement one another. They were designed for each other. They were designed in such a way that they might be united together and to be considered one flesh. There's a whole sermon we could preach on that, right? Actually, there's a whole sermon series that we could do on that. We'll have to save for another time. But Adam and Eve, we believe, were made in God's image. And it's also important for us to understand that God did not need to create humanity. God didn't need to create humanity. Jesus prayed in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so even before anything was created, Christ, the Son, exists with the Father and also the Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week as we were discussing the doctrine of God, in this perfect, loving relationship, experiencing the full glory of the Godhead with each other. God didn't need to create us. From an eternity past, they were in perfect, glorious relationship. God didn't need us, but we were made that we might be brought in to that glory. God didn't need us. How does that make you feel? <laughs> What's your response to that? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. But he made you for his glory. We know that from Isaiah 43. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. 
God didn't need you, but he created you and I for his glory. We are created to bring God glory. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem writes, when we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we can conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But Scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God Himself. That is the final definition of true importance or significance to our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? You see, the fact that you were created by God for God's glory, that gives you monumental significance and monumental importance. Our very existence points to God's glory. And so these awesome, these beautiful creatures known as human beings, they testify just like the stars in the sky that Corey read about, just, or, no, Jimmy read about just a little bit ago. They testify that God is glorious. And not only were we made to bring God glory, but we were created to enjoy God as well. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Not just a little bit of joy, not just a little sprinkling of seasoning to my joy, fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You and I were made to be brought into this glorious relationship with the Trinity, but not only just to be brought into it, to be blown away by it and to, to see how spectacular God really is. We were made to marvel. We were made to take great pleasure in him. What are the things that you take pleasure in on a day-to-day -day basis? You're made to take pleasure in God, first and foremost, before everything else. In fact, everything else that's pleasurable is supposed to remind you and point you to the superior pleasure that is found in God. We were made to find our strength in him. We were made to find our sustenance in him. And as we did that... As we glorify God, as we enjoy Him for who He is, the Bible tells us something even, even more amazing. And that is that God rejoices in us. This is, this is incredible. He rejoices in us. And we see a connection here between what's supposed to happen in a marriage relationship between a husband and wife as they are mutually just joyful uh, for the existence of each other and that, that she is mine and, and he is mine and this, this beautiful relationship that just keeps growing and growing and growing as we're, we're in awe of each other and we, we are, take pleasure in one another and we see how marriage was actually designed to point to this greater thing that we're supposed to have going on with God. We're made for Him. We're supposed to enjoy Him. And as we're doing so, He rejoices in us. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Zephaniah 3 Verse 17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. God rejoices over you. You know, people talk about going to church. They talk about growing up in the church. They talk about Christian guilt or religious guilt and being plagued with this. And they need to throw off those shackles and they need to find a way of escape. They don't understand the, the, 
the heart of what Christianity is. <laughs> they, they aren't understanding the essentials. Have we failed as a church for years and years, decades, at, at, at not, not making people understand that you were designed in such a way that God wants to rejoice over you? <laughs> for everyone who's ever felt insignificant, everyone who's ever felt alone, Everyone who has felt unloved or underappreciated or unwanted. There's a creator who made you for himself. Who made you so that you could know what it is to love and be loved. To value and be valued. And you go, wow, that sounds a lot like self-esteem gospel to me. I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about, Jared. It's not the self-esteem gospel. It's not even close to the self-esteem gospel. And that's because of what God's word says happened next. What happened to this beautiful, perfect, meaningful relationship? What happened to it? It was utterly and thoroughly destroyed by one party who decided to be unfaithful. Some of you know what that's like. You know the horror and devastation that ensues when someone to which you have entrusted your, your heart, your soul, your future, and they take it and they drive it into the floor. They take something beautiful and they burn it to the ground. The relationship that you and I were designed to have with God was beautiful. There's no, nothing, no relationship that is more significant than that one. And it was burned to the ground. Remember we said that Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Just real quickly as an aside, image bearers, what do they do? They reflect and they represent. They reflect and they represent God, that's what they do. They reflect the likeness of the object that they have been made in the image of, in this case, God, and they also serve as a representation of that object to anyone and anything that, that observes them or come in, comes in contact with them. And that's why all of the planes and all of the, the, the cars and the, uh, the, the boats, the models that I created as a kid, they, they imaged something. They imaged those, those things that they were images of. And, and if they were well-made and well-designed, I could actually look at those things and I could learn something about the things that they represented that's what human beings were designed to do. As they walked, as they talked, as they reasoned, as they created, they were to be living, breathing models of God and what he is like. Through him, the world was supposed to see something of God's beauty, of God's love, of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, of his righteousness. And yet, what ended up happening was the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do. Instead of trusting. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had done from eternity past, they decided to distrust. Instead of remaining faithful, as God has been perfectly faithful, they were unfaithful. Instead of, of showing honor, they showed dishonor. Instead of finding in God all of their joy and all of their hope and all of their sustenance, they decided to look elsewhere. And they took what was made good and beautiful, and they burned it to the ground. We read in Scripture, and we believe that Adam and Eve sinned when tempted by Satan. Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate the first sin. What is sin exactly? Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act or attitude or nature. It's more than just slapping someone in the face, isn't it? And it's more than just lying about them or slandering them. And it's more than just taking what doesn't belong to you. Even before words and beyond words and actions, sin can be an attitude. 
and even beyond an attitude, it can be a posture of, of the heart, of the heart that's turned away from God. And that's exactly what happened at the very beginning. They heard what was untrue, they believed it, and in an instant, even before the fruit was picked, even before the fruit was picked, they had become sinful because their hearts were turned away from a posture of unity with God and was turned in on itself. Well, they had been created by God to, to fully enjoy Him from the inside out. In one fell swoop, they make a mockery of God and stupidly elevated themselves. <laughs> You've heard it said how the mighty have fallen. Well, being made in God's image, human beings were the very pinnacle of creation. There's nothing higher than human beings. They held a status that nothing else did, nothing. They alone had the privileged role of representing God to the universe, and instead they showed precisely what he is not. Precisely what he is not. Have we made ourselves the laughing stock of all creation? How moronic is this? Think about this. The rest of creation, it's fighting for survival, isn't it? We look out there and we see it fighting for survival. Birds, fish, animals, they're, they're instinctively doing what they need to do to perpetuate their own species. And here we are making idiot moves to bring about our own destruction. <laughs> And I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about the, the reckless moves of junior high boys jumping off the, their roofs into their swimming pools. I'm not talking about that. We're, we're drugging ourselves to death. We're, we're heading full blast into addiction and saying, go do it. It's legal. And we're leading ourselves into poverty and towards suicide. We as a, uh, the human race... We're killing our own. We're killing our, our babies. We're enslaving ourselves to, to, to little, little rectangular screens, crippling our children from, from even having the ability to have meaningful conversations face-to-face -face with one another. We're seeking out sexual relationships that are incapable of reproducing. We use our tongues that were designed by our Creator to speak of his awesome character and point others to his magnificent glory, and we're using those things to tear each other down, other fellow image bearers down, and to rip them to pieces, become depressed out of their minds, to, to, to isolate, to insulate, to, to incapacitate. We use our hands that were, that were made to cultivate, to, to create, to, to serve. To, to be used for the good of others. And we use them to do what is either meaningless or, or to destroy what God has made good. And this is, we could go on and on. To the rest of creation, humanity must look like a hilarious tragedy. We must look completely ridiculous. It all started with one bad decision, but it continues, doesn't it? It continues today. Like all sin, the first was an attack, an attack on truth, an attack on moral standards, an attack on human identity and rationality. Genesis 3, 4 tells us that Adam and Eve, they bought into a lie. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was a bald face lie. It was an assault on what was true. How often do we see flat-out lies perpetuated in our world? We see it all the time, don't we? And we go, oh my goodness. I can't believe he just said that. He knows the exact opposite is true. Sin is about staring truth in the face and it's about declaring exactly what is untrue. It's about compromising our moral standards, doing things that, we, that ought not to be done. Can you think of anything that's more immoral than spitting in the face of your creator? It, it's, a, it's about defying your God-given identity. We've been made intentionally. We've been made purposefully. We have a sacredness about us. <laughs> and yet, what do we do? Well, 
we act as if we are nobodies. We don't know who we are. We're just left on the doorstep. No note. We don't know who we are. We use our bodies dishonorably. We use our minds to justify uh, our frivolities. And we say, well, we're, we're just animals just like all the rest of them. <laughs> we're just creatures by chance. I mean, who really knows? We convince ourselves that we are makers of our own identity, of our own meaning, of our own destiny. Manhood, womanhood, motherhood, fatherhood, what are those? We convince ourselves that we're makers of our own identity. Those are all just constructs, right? They're constructs of a society, constructs of an antiquated and oppressive society. We can remake ourselves to be something better, whatever we like. In fact, better yet, we can get rid of all these constructs. And sin is an attack on rationality. <laughs> Psalm 14.1 says it well. The fool says in his heart. You know what the fool says? The fool says there's no God. That's a foolish thing to do. Want more evidence that sin is moronic, that it's irrational? Open the book of Proverbs, and you'll see it in Proverbs 10, 23, 12, 15, 14, 7, 14, 16, 15, 5, 18, 2. We could go on and on and on. Sin is irrational. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We can't just point fingers at Adam and Eve. We can't just say, wow, you, you guys, you were the bad. No, 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 all of us have done it. We believe that in union with Adam, human beings are sinners, we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. And so because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's sin, woven into the fabric of our beings is this rebellious nature, just like Romans 5.12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That means that you and I don't enter the world as blank slates, do we? Mm -mm. From the very beginning, sin is written on our hearts, just like Ephesians 2.3 says. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature. And because we're sinners by nature, that means we're also guilty before we're even out of the gate. We're born rebels, we're born traitors, we're born blasphemers and thieves, aren't we? <laughs> Boy, this is good news. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And if you look at Romans, you realize that the wicked includes all of us. Someone might say, well, you know, that doesn't sound very fair. doesn't sound very fair at all. You're making it sound like we don't even really have a choice. Well, in, in a way, in a way, you kind of don't. Because our great, 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 and we could go on with greats for however long, because of what they have done, our, our grandparents have done, we are who we are. We carry in our being the impact of their decision, don't we? You look around you, you look, in, look inside of yourself, and you look outside of yourself, and you find out that not a single one of us does not freely choose what is sinful. We, we just freely do it. Everybody does it. You can't point to anyone and say that they were immune to this. I look at my own kids, my two daughters. They're not immune to this. They freely do it. The decisions, the attitudes, the actions, the words we choose each and every day, they testify to the fact that sin is written on our hearts. And so we believe that every, every part of our being is corrupted by sin. Paul wrote, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I, I desire to do, the thing, do what is right, but, but not the ability to carry it out. We may not be as bad as we possibly can be, right? You may look in the mirror, you may look at your life, and you may say, you know, I could be a lot worse. You know, mom better be glad she had me because, boy, I could have caused her some real trouble. We may not be as bad as we could be. We look around us, we see people that are just consumed with sin in different ways. Some, are the, some that are more evil than others. We have our, 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 our wall of fame, our wall of shame, right? And we put the, the worst of the worst on that wall. And yet all of us and every part of us has been affected by sins. Our minds have been affected by sins, haven't they? Our thinking, our reasoning, our feelings have been affected by sin. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I know what's right, but my feelings just won't allow me to do it. 
Our desires, our compulsions, our passions, they're, they're burning out of control with the influence of sin. Our creativity and our ability to innovate. Man, how many, how many technological advances are, are not instantly transformed into new engines for sin? It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, we got this wonderful new thing. Oh, look, you know, this Christmas, you watch TV, you watch the commercials, they're going to prop, they're going to put up in front of everyone. This is what you need. There's this one commercial about this, this new phone where uh, this girl's just staring at it, looking at it, and then she leaves it, and the phone like starts beating with like heartbeats and little, you know, like, oh, I love you. I want you. Oh, come get me. Oh, my goodness. You got to be kidding me. Someone might say, well, you know, what's, what's really the big deal? The big deal? Are you kidding me? So I have a mind of my own. <laughs> I do what I want to do. What's wrong with that? Well, we've already talked about how sin is inherently destructive. Not only is it destructive, sin's also enslaving. It takes us captive. It grabs hold of us and then won't let us go. It makes us think that we're free, and yet we're anything but free. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're a slave to this. Sin enslaves. Not only that, but because of sin, you're unable to please the God you were made for. Romans 8 says it short and sweet. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 says it again. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. There are people all over the world doing all sorts of different good things, and yet none of it is acceptable to God. Why? Because their heart is a heart of rebellion. And deep down inside, they don't do the things that they do because they love and want to obey God. But they do it in their sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, the best things that we can do, the glorious, the righteous, the wonderful, good, acts of charity, acts of kindness, they're like a polluted garment. That's bad news. But you know, worse than the news of sin being enslavement, and worse than the news that sin brings addiction. And, 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 and worse than the news that sin actually has consequences. Consequences for thinking that or, or feeling that or, or, or doing that or saying that. Worse than all of that. Worse than our, 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 our inability to please God. There's something worse. And that is what it does to our relationship with Him. As a result of sin, human beings are both alienated from God and under his wrath. It does not get worse than this. Colossians 1 tells us that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is, this is a, a reflection on who Christians were before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. What were you? You were alienated. You were alienated. The ones who were made to be in perfect relationship with this good God. Made to enjoy Him. Made to find our purpose in Him. Our significance, our joy, our sustenance. Everything that we, we need, we cut ourselves off from Him. Adam and Eve went from walking in, in perfect peace and shameless exposure before their Maker to immediately being forced to hide in fear. After they sinned, and the same thing is going on today. Look around you and you see people who are plagued with pain, with anxiety, with fear, with depression. People who are just wandering aimlessly through life. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're numb from seeking all sorts of different sources of pleasure, but finding no fulfillment. Attaining everything that, they, they, they could, that could possibly be begotten and yet unable to escape that feeling that they don't have what they need. And the people who are wrecked with guilt, it's all they can do to plunge themselves into alcohol, into drugs, into increased sensual stimulation, into entertainment, into greed, into busyness, and into even giving to charity. <laughs> Let's do some good here. I, I, 
Anything that will either take away their agony or make them feel better about themselves. They're alienated from their maker. And what they need is not more meds. And what they need is not the right, the right partner, the right guy or girl that's going to make them happy. Or the right hobby to pass the time. That's not what they need. No, they need to be reconciled. They need to have a relationship with God repaired. But not only are they alienated, by their sin they have become objects of wrath. They're not just the lost. They're not just the pathetic. They're not just the enslaved. They're not just the needy. They're the damned. As sinners by nature and by choice, we are condemned and we are objects of wrath. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. Romans 2.5, but because of your heart and impenitence and hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How's that for self-esteem gospel? Well, why should God be so upset with us? He knows who we are. Can't he just give us a break? Why should our punishment be so severe? Why, what, what kind of sick being would condemn a person to eternal misery for just, just a, a minor offense? Is eating a little piece of fruit? Are you kidding me? What a little white lie? Come on. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Any sin is more or less heinous depending upon the honor and majesty of the one whom we have offended. Since God is of infinite honor, infinite majesty, infinite holiness, the slightest sin is of infinite consequence. The slightest sin is nothing less than cosmic treason when we realize against whom we have sinned. What makes sin so so bad, so big, so small, it's not just what word we said, or what thought that we thought, or even what action that we did. It's who the sin is against. Sin is not simply wrong because it results in in something painful or something destructive. Sin is wrong because, as Wayne Grudem writes, it is directly opposite to all that is good in God's character. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. Because sin contradicts God's holiness. He must hate it. You sin against me? That's not that big a deal. Who am I? What am I? I have a title. (laughs) I stand up here and I speak things out of a book. Anybody could do that. You sin against me, what's the big deal? I stand on level ground with the rest of you guys looking up at that cross in the same amount of need as you. But you sin against God, and now it's serious. God is holy. God is perfect. His character is perfectly loving. It's perfect justice. It's, it's, his glory is, is infinite. There's no one who is more significant than he No one who is more important than he. R.C. Sproul rightly pointed out that the question is not, why is God so angry at us for turning against him? It's how on earth can he be so patient with us? When the first human beings chose to rebel against God, why didn't his righteous anger just fall out of the sky and eradicate them from the face of the earth? Why not that? That's what should have happened. And how in the world are we able to agree with with the writer of Lamentations 3? How can can we even fathom that this could be? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How can that be? That shouldn't be. And bam, there you have it. 
Now we're in a position to understand why the good news is so mind-bogglingly good. Shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. Billie Eilish, along with all of her mopey, dark, and depressing songs, she actually should be a whole lot more dark, a whole lot more depressed than she makes herself out to be if she understood the condition that she, along with the rest of us, are in. Were we to recognize the true state of affairs that we are in, of, or that we're lost in outer darkness, cut off from all that is good, that we're set apart to experience the full force of God's righteous, holy anger, we should be falling to the ground in abject terror. We should be crumpled in, in the corner, unable to escape the radiance of his blazing glory that's just exposing all of our disgusting rot and rancid stench from our sin. We should be sobbing uncontrollably. We should be waiting the moment of his glorious return where his fury will be unleashed on us. That's where we should be. We're in desperate, desperate need of good news. What we need is not self-esteem. What we need is not a boost to our egos. We don't need more money. We don't need a new diet plan or exercise routine. We don't need affirmation from people around us. And we don't need for people to pay for the mistakes of their grandparents. No, we need reconciliation with our God. We need rescue from the punishment of our sin. We need to be renewed back into the image of our Creator and reflect Him the way we ought. Who can save us? Who can deliver us from this, these bodies of wrath? That, my friends, is where the good news of the gospel comes in. We believe only through God's saving work in Jesus can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. That's it. That's it. Only through Jesus Christ is your trust in God's saving work is your trust in Jesus. Fear not. Two of the most glorious words that have ever fallen upon condemned ears of a helpless race. Fear not. The sky tore open with brilliant, glorious light. And it surrounded some of the lowliest, some of the most unlikely people, working the graveyard shift with a bunch of smelly animals out in the field. And a voice came from the heavens saying, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And into the darkness of time and space came rushing in the best news that the weary world has ever known. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. My friends, welcome to the Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Father, for the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We memorize verses as kids and we sing songs that as we get older they seem they may seem infantile. And yet, Lord, the truths that they hold are they are weighty and they make all the difference. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to look at something that is absolutely essential, essential to the good news, and that is the bad news. We don't like talking about this. We don't like admitting to it. it. It creates in us an uneasy feeling. It creates in us a sense of mourning, Lord. And yet, it makes you look all the more radiant and all the more beautiful. And I pray, God, that as we enter into this season of Christmas, that we would be absolutely blown away by who you are and what you have done through Jesus. We love you. 
We pray, Lord, that as we continue to hold fast to this great gospel, Lord, that more and more people would be called by your Holy Spirit, that their eyes would be open, that they would see the truth of their need, and they would see your glorious solution to their problem in Jesus, and that they would embrace you wholeheartedly. Lord, would you give your people this day and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that opportunities to testify to what you have done inside of them, to what they have believed and the transformation that, you have, uh, that has taken place in the hope and the joy that they have because of Jesus. Lord, call other people to yourself, and we pray, Lord, honor us by letting us be a part of it. We thank you for that privilege. Would you use us powerfully, Lord? And would you use our missionaries who are around the world, some who are sleeping right now, Lord, would you enable them to proclaim your word with power, with conviction, and spirit, call people to yourself. We long for transformation. We long for revival, Lord, but we recognize that it begins with us. And so, Lord, if there is sin inside of us, and we know there is, Lord, weed it out, purify our hearts. Lord, compel us to drop to our knees, to shut out other voices, and to say, Lord, here I am. What do you have for me? Lord, may we daily come into fellowship with you, come to confession, come to reliance, come to look to your word and be filled with your truth. And as we walk the walks that we walk, Lord, may we walk with confidence and boldness and joy. And would you use your people powerfully to proclaim the good news to a very, very weary world. Lord, we pray that this place, this little plot of land that we have here in Westminster, California, that this place would continue to be dedicated solely to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure, unadulterated, and powerful. And Lord, would you speak through the teachers on this campus, to students here who do not know you, to families here that do not know you, and may they come to receive you, Father. And Lord, the neighbors that are around us, may they see a great light emanating from this place, the light of the gospel. And Lord, may they respond in faith, do a transformative work, and may it begin here, in this very room, inside of our very hearts. We love you, we thank you, we look to you. In Christ's holy name we pray. And everyone said, amen.